Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. On Gotta Watch the Tape from Cleveland.com, Doug Maurice, Scott Patsko, Ellis Williams, your numbers and film breakdown on the 8-3 and three Cleveland Browns heading into Sunday's game against the Tennessee Titans. We are going to talk about Terrence Mitchell, secondary things. We're, we're kind of diving in on some important players on the Browns who maybe aren't necessarily the, the first-line superstars, the Miles Garrett, Nick Chubb, OBJ, Denzel Ward kind of people. So Scott is going to go hard digging in on how Terrence Mitchell has been playing. And then in the second half, Ellis Williams is going to go in on this Browns offensive line, just how well they are playing. But before we do that, I was telling Scott and Ellis before we came on into the wee hours, into the wee hours, Monday night, I was just watching game pass and watching the Browns and the Jaguars. And I felt in my basement by myself at three o'clock in the morning, I felt like a film guy for 10 seconds. So now I'm going to put it out to the world to embarrass myself and prove that I'm not. I don't know if this is something that maybe we would get into on the Friday podcast. I don't know if it's just something that I'll write about this week or I'll just think about. I don't know how much you guys have gone back and rewatched the Browns and the Jaguars or how much you paid attention to this specifically on Sunday. But I just want to throw this out there because again, I watch film for the first time for 45 minutes and now I feel smart. I thought Baker saw things pretty well Sunday. And I thought there were moments, secondarily, I thought there were moments when Rashard Higgins at least twice and Taiwan Taylor ran off deep safeties and allowed things to clear for Jarvis Landry underneath in a way that we wondered about when OBJ was gone. Maybe it's just because the Jaguars are dumb. And they were like, yeah, I don't know. Send your safety with Rashard Higgins. He might catch a ball for 60 yards. Make sure you have help there. Let Jarvis go underneath. But I thought, yes, Baker missed some throws. I thought he didn't have any terrible reads. But there was one he could have thrown. But I understood why he was reluctant to do it. That was on second down. Then he came back on third down and ripped it for a first down. And yes, he missed some things. But I thought it was kind of progress. I thought it was a vision a little bit of how this passing game still might work. I thought on second watch it was better than I when I watched it or what I thought of it when it happened in the moment Sunday. And it makes me wonder if it really, really, really is coming for this offense. Does anybody else think that? Like, I just, I just thought he saw things. And Stefanski helped him with the play calling and the way they bootlegged and rolled out in play action and gave him vision of things to see. But I thought it was pretty good. I don't know. Anybody else think that? Anyone else? Not really. What do you think, Ellis? I was focused on the defense a lot on my rewatch. Yeah, and because I'm talking O-line, I, I had an O-line rewatch. I'm going to do a passing game rewatch today. I'll say this, Doug. The Browns' offense finally had an opportunity to be at full strength with the weather not being a, you know, one of those trilogy uh, windstorms. And I think we learned a lot about Cordero Hodge. I think he's a lot better than anyone probably would have thought. It was one of those, um, when we talked about OBJ going down, we wondered, all right, what is Hodge? What is he going to be? And, you know, you know, two games with, uh, you know, leading the team and receiving two weeks ago and then having a few big catches this week. Uh, I think that's a bright spot. And when, it, in terms of this offense, if those play, if those guys Higgins and Hodge can fill those roles. And like you said, Doug, run safeties deep, open things up for Jarvis Landry. That's all scheme. Everything you just said to me right now, Doug, sounds like Kevin Stefanski scheming the passing game up and making up for lesser talent on the outside. 
And if you're able to do that, you're going to have chances on shot plays where, where this team is, we still need to figure out is in a Bengals situation when they need to go out and they need to throw, you know, eight out of 10 times and move the ball downfield. That will be intriguing to continue to follow against defenses that aren't playing seventh, six and eight string cornerbacks like the Jaguars on Sunday. One last thing I'll say, cause I screenshotted it. I, I'm up at three o'clock in the morning. I'm, I'm film guy for 10 minutes. I'm screenshotting <laughs> things and tweeting them out like um, Dan Orlovsky. They ran, and I did a whole thing. It's up at cleveland.com about their fourth down stuff, which I also think is interesting. Can I, I'll drop another thing in here. I'm just taking over. I'm just like, this is the Doug sideshow for six minutes. Believe it or not, the Browns on fourth and one this year, I went through all their fourth down plays. They've had 10 fourth and one situations this year. They've punted twice and kicked one field goal. So they've gone for it seven times. They're three for seven on fourth and one. They are 0 for four when they hand it to a tailback. They have not made it, handing it to a tailback with the best run game in football. Their three conversions are a Baker sneak and Odell pass and a Hodge pass on Sunday, which was maybe the craziest play of the year. On fourth and one, they drop back. They run a two-man route with David and Joku and Kaderil Hodge. That's it. They have an eight-man protection. The Jaguars drop six. There are six guys in coverage against two Browns options. And Baker rips that sideline comeback route to Kaderil Hodge, who makes an awesome catch on his knees on the sideline. On fourth and one, on like a critical fourth and one that led eventually to a field goal in a tight game. It was kind of a goofy play call to me, but I find it very interesting that they are 0 for 4, handing it to the tailback on fourth and one this year, which is like it is maybe just probably not enough of a sample size. It's more of a blip, but they are the fifth worst team in the league overall on fourth down conversions and the four teams behind them all stink. So it's like the one thing they're not doing that well yet. The one thing they're not doing that well. And again, it's still kind of small sample size, but I'm intrigued by it. Yeah, Doug, we're going to get into that when we talk O-line. I don't think it's too small of a sample size. The Browns have some success rate stats that we're going to get into. Uh, As for that fourth down call, I think that was Baker's best play of the game. I mean, he, that ball is probably is most likely designed to go to David Njoku and Schobert was having none of it. And you've only got one place to put it and it's on the sideline there. And of course, Hodge has to make the catch. But looking back on it, that was probably Baker's best throw of the, the game and, and a critical one. Say the Browns are not good in short yardage. That's, you know, the bottom line here with a lot of these short yardage uh, running plays, whether it's third and short or fourth and short. Uh, they're just not good. Nick Chubb, particularly, for whatever reason, has not been able to be the guy who can get you those tough yards. And then that, that comes through on those fourth and short when they want to hand it off. And I think it might be time for Stefanski to adjust to that in some way and not just like believe in it, which is, I asked him about it after the game. And again, on Monday, I'm not like on him about it. I'm intrigued by how he thinks about it, but they had a defensive end Jacksonville, a defensive end sort of split Austin Hooper and Dredrick Wills and just blow up the fourth and one run. And it was like, well, if you can't get it blocked up and whatever, I mean, I just, I thought it was interesting that's my film watch. If, if, if I was in charge of got to watch the tape, it would be seven minutes long each week. Cause I just gave you everything <laughs> I had. That was as much film watching as I can do, but that, by the way, you know, who was a pain in the butt in coverage, Joe Schobert, you go back and watch that game. It's like the, the number of times that there's, you can see there's a read to a back or a tight end in the middle of the field or something. And he just sits on a route. It's like, well, that's not there anymore. It's like, Oh yeah, he was good at that. The Browns could use that probably. I get it. We already went over that, but he was good at it. And not every, not every linebacker in the world is as good as it as he is. But also, last one, Jarvis Landry actually broke and safety's ankles with a crossover on a 27-yard route where the safety was deep to help. Jarvis just ran down the seam, went out a little bit, and then came back in and the safety fell over. And it was like, I almost want to ask Jarvis about you. What do you do when you go back and watch on film he like took care of the safety on his own because then he beat the corner one-on-one. It was Baker had plenty of time and kind of threw it high to him and, and Jarvis snatched it out of the air. The safety was on his knees because Jarvis's route drove the safety to his knees because he tripped over his own feet. And that is Doug's version of got to watch the tape. All right. Now back to the real numbers and films analysts here at cleveland.com. We appreciate you guys joining us. Let's get into Terrence Mitchell. Super curious about this. Denzel Ward remains out was not there against Jacksonville, will not be here against Tennessee. 
So what are we seeing from Terrence Mitchell? Scott Pasco, dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape. Yeah, I, I guess I want to start talk by talking about how Terrence Mitchell got here a little bit, because I think it's important to remember how he started uh, and the fact that he's become this, I think what most Browns fans would be considered like a solid backup veteran backup, a guy that you can count on to come in and get snaps for you. Kind of like what he did last year when, uh, when Ward and, and Williams were out uh, back in 2014. Uh, remember the Browns drafted that year? I'm sure you remember Doug, Justin Gilbert, Johnny Manziel in the first round, Woo. two days later, Terrence Mitchell was drafted by the Cowboys, 254th pick overall. He was three picks, actually two spots ahead of Mr. Irrelevant. Drafted by the Cowboys. So he was waived at the end of camp, and then he bounced around like the Bears, went back to the Cowboys, to the Texans, ended up with the Chiefs. He was pretty much just a practice squad guy. Then he finally got his chance in 2016 with the Chiefs, started like seven games the next year, and impressed John Dorsey enough to where he offered him a contract to come here with the Browns in 2018. And as you remember, he started – that year opposite ward uh he kind of missed a handful of games in the middle of the year because he had that broken arm then the next year they you know draft greedy williams and terrence mitchell as a backup again so it's kind of been you know success story and then kind of pushed back to the backup role and now here he is and he's really proven i guess his value for whatever you want a backup to be i mean that has been terrence mitchell in his time with the browns he's been the guy who's been able to step in and he's already reached a new high for coverage snaps this year He's already broken that, and it really snaps overall. He's pretty much at his career high. And this is a big year for him because it's the last year of his three-year deal. He's looking to sign his third NFL deal this offseason. Um, you know, he was on his rookie deal, and he signed a three-year $10 million uh, deal with the Browns. So he's in his last year of that. He's getting plenty of things to uh, take to the negotiating table this year by basically starting the entire season. Uh, so how is he doing? NFL quarterbacks have a passer rating of 90.7 against him, which is a career high. But, I mean, it's not horrible. Uh, it's still, I guess, somewhat respectable. That passer rating was in the 70s the last couple of years. So, again, you get him on the field more, people are going to be targeting him more. He only has seven career picks, but he's only given up 12 career touchdowns and 276 targets. By comparison, Ward's given up nine touchdowns and 205 targets over his career. Uh, opponents are completing 65% of their passes against actually they've never reached 65%. They're at 56.7 this year. So he's keeping that low, which is good. He only has five missed tackles this season, which is a single season high, but again, most snaps ever. So clearly he's not the same player as Denzel Ward. There's a drop off there, but there are some similarities. Uh, Mitchell has been the best Browns corner against the run this season, according to PFF. Uh, Ward is second. They're the only cornerbacks in the sixties grade wise. So it's not great, but across the league, defenses are taking a hit this year. And that's about, that's as good as you're going to get <laughs> on this Browns team against the run from the cornerbacks. Mitchell's second on the team in tackles. He's only got five misses. Uh, he leads the team in targets. Ward has 54. He's got 60. He's given up two touchdowns in coverage. Ward has four. Uh, they're both tied with eight pass breakups. So again, when we think of Denzel Ward, we think of a guy who made the Pro Bowl, a guy who before he got hurt, uh, was looking at the second half of the season with an opening to maybe to get back to the Pro Bowl because he's had some of those standout games. Uh, so Mitchell has not been that, but when you look at the numbers overall, it's kind of comparable to, to what Ward has been this season. Ward only has four penalties this season. Mitchell has two in 475 coverage snaps. Only three cornerbacks in the entire league have more coverage snaps than, than Terrence Mitchell this season. And two of those guys have seven penalties each. So he's really keeping the penalties down despite being out there a lot. Um, you could argue that the, the penalty he had against the Jaguars on Sunday was a smart play. He got beat by the double move. It's very similar to the, the one that James Washington beat Ward with earlier this season for a touchdown. Uh, but it was basically just on the other side of the field. More Mitchell kind of reached out and grabbed him. And uh, they got to the 18-yard line and settled for a field goal. So they kind of came out ahead on that. But that's kind of where Mitchell is this year. He's... He's not Denzel Ward, but as far as potential, I guess, ceiling. But uh, in the overall numbers, he's, he's having a very similar year. So a couple things. I think, A, it's important and fair to him, and you said this, Scott, to think of him as a third corner and not a second corner because the plan was not for him to be a starter, really. The plan is, and I know he would, you know, was battling Greedy in camp, but the plan is you draft Greedy Williams in the second round. You're thinking that guy's going to win a job. And now Terrence Mitchell, who is a moderately priced veteran, 
is your third corner. I think he might be the perfect third corner in the NFL because when you need him, if somebody gets hurt, he can come in and not get killed. And so I want to, Alice, I want to get you on that. Like, even just like, it doesn't, they're not like losing games because Terrence Mitchell is getting annihilated, right? I mean, I think that is, that is clear. And that's important because if you didn't have a guy like that, you might be losing games because, oh, oh, we don't have greedy the whole year. And this guy, the next guy behind him is terrible. The other thing is, it reminds me, talk about the contract. It reminds me a little bit. I wonder how this will go. Like Chris Hubbard in Pittsburgh was the sixth offensive lineman for the Steelers. There was an injury. He was forced to start for like the second half of his last year in Pittsburgh or whatever it was, played pretty well, and then got paid starter money by the Browns to prove he wasn't a starter. And now he's back as your sixth offensive lineman, as your swing guy, and he's back to what he should be. I wonder when you look forward for the Browns, is Terrence Mitchell being solid enough that somebody's going to try to pay him as a starter? And I don't think the Browns can pay him or plan him as a starter because he's exactly what you want as your third corner, an injury replacement, the guy who can step in, maybe he plays in some nickel, whatever. But I don't know that you want to just like, start training camp and say, Oh yeah. Like greedy, whatever didn't work out. It's Mitchell and Ward. That's it. I'll be curious to see the future, but Ellis, he's not killing them. And like for a backup who's basically had to become a starter. I think that's exactly what you're looking for, right? Is he killing them? Yeah, the Browns have completely lucked out with Terrence Mitchell's performance. As you guys stated, this was not the plan by any means. This was not the plan yet. Terrence Mitchell has completely held his own against you know, some, some top end receivers. This, this, this is a corner who was tried right away in week two against the Cincinnati Bengals and then was tried again two, two weeks later in Dallas. You know, they both those teams were able to move the football, but there are no crippling plays where you think like, oh, that's a liability. He's out there on an island and he can't make a play. Sure, he's going to get got sometimes, but this by no means is a guy that, uh, you know, we saw Darius Slay last night just get completely worked. Uh, by DK Metcalf. I'm not saying Metcalf wouldn't do that to Terrence Mitchell. I'm sure he would, but point being, it's not, it's never been this blatantly obvious thing, like get this guy off the football field. And and secondly, what is so nice about the, the Terrence Mitchell season right now is that he's doing it with being the most reliable guy with Denzel now out of the lineup. That's a lot to ask. You know, you are all of a sudden going from a, a third guy to now as Scott's going to get into being a, a number one corner as he was last week. And I, I don't care that it was the Jaguars. That is a complete change in mindset and responsibility. And I completely agree with this. This is his heading and his timing couldn't be better for himself. This is heading towards a payday. It's not going to be the type of payday we've talked about with Denzel Ward on this podcast before, but someone's going to scoop him up as a, as a number two, or at least, you know, one of the better number threes in football. And when it comes for the Browns to, to, to decide where they're going to spend their money this offseason. And we probably will talk about this in a second. I'm not sure Terrence is a guy they're going to be able to land just because of circumstance right now. He's gotten the opportunity. He's risen to the occasion. And that usually results in a, a payday that's going to come in the offseason. And just very quickly to tie up sort of what I was saying, when you're talking about being a winning team, I actually think Terrence Mitchell and Chris Hubbard are great examples of how the Browns are a winning team this year, because Greedy Williams gone, Denzel Ward out for part of the time, but you have a backup who can come in and be capable. Jack Conklin out for a little bit. Wyatt Teller out for a little bit. You bring in Chris Hubbard. He's not starter quality, but when he came in, he was pretty capable. He didn't ruin you. And when you are a winning team, that's what you have. You don't, you don't get, you don't lose games because you have a couple frontline guys get hurt. And I think maybe in the past, the Browns didn't have enough guys like Chris Hubbard and Terrence Mitchell as backups. And I think it's maybe an under underplayed story of the success of how they got to eight and three. But the reality is also here we are. You're coming to, to AJ Brown and Corey Davis and Ryan Tannehill and a more competent offense against the Titans on Sunday. And Terrence Mitchell is going to be your top corner, Scott. So how, how did things actually really go? for these corners and Terrence Mitchell against Jacksonville. Yeah, I think the real impact of Ward being out isn't so much the difference between him and Mitchell, but the difference between Mitchell and Kevin Johnson out wide, and then the difference between Johnson and Tavier Thomas and MJ Stewart in the slot. That's where things kind of, that's where the depth gets strained. And you're right about pointing out some of those positions. And when you think about how this team would have looked like, you know, if they hadn't had some of these devastating uh, 
injuries prior to the season. If, if Greedy Williams is out there and uh, that's some, some nice depth and some spots like corner uh, and, and like wide receiver, especially, but it just, you know, now they've really, they've gotten to a point where they're kind of strained. And right now the Browns do not have great depth at cornerback and, but they were able to survive because they were playing the Jaguars in large part. They used four cornerbacks in the game, really five, but Robert Jackson played like six snaps. Uh, they'd been going with three a game for six weeks. Like as soon as Kevin Johnson got healthy and was able to start and play significant snaps, that was the line. If it was Mitchell Ward and Johnson, and those were your three guys, MJ Stewart would get like one or two snaps per game, if that. But they really used everything at their disposal against the Jaguars. Mitchell, uh, he earned a PFF grade of 62. Uh, defensive grade, not great, but again, most defensive grades are down this year. He was 65.2 in coverage. He allowed one catch on two tar- on two targets for minus two yards. So, I mean, that's pretty much limiting the damage there. He also had the penalty. He had six tackles, which led the team. So, again, uh, it was you know a solid performance by Mitchell and, and what you wanted out of him. As for the rest of the group, uh, Johnson was moved from the slot out to wide, and then Thomas and Stewart were getting the reps in the slot. Johnson – he had 59 snaps. He started, he, it was the first time he had more than four snaps out wide since week one. Wow. Uh, so it was a really big difference for him. He had a 43.8 grade. He allowed four catches on five targets, 66 yards. And there were plays when he was really chasing guys. And there was really for most of the first half, Mike Glennon was looking his way. And I mean, Tavier Thomas was over on that side a lot too, but really Kevin Johnson seemed to be on, on Glennon's mind. Javier Thomas, we hadn't seen him on the field on defense since week four. Uh, he started in the slot, had 25 snaps, uh, 59.8 coverage grade, so not great. Three catches on four targets, 28 yards. And then MJ Stewart, uh, who a lot like Javier Thomas, found himself on the field for a significant amount of time. He played 30 snaps. Uh, he was in coverage for 16 of them. 74.5 grade, though, hmm. uh, which is pretty good. He was only targeted once, did not allow a catch. So don't be surprised if he's your starter at Nicker Corner. The only problem with MJ Stewart is he really struggles in tackling against the run, and that's going to be a big deal this week with Derrick Henry and the Titans. Um, he's actually had the worst tackling grade and the worst run defensive grade. He's even worse than Andrew Sandejo this season, so you know he's pretty hard down there. Robert Jackson was on the field for six snaps, and that's probably as many as the Browns wanted him out there for. There was a second uh, quarter play where he got beat really bad deep and Glennon just overthrew it. Uh, it would have been a touchdown. Glennon was kind of throwing off his back foot, trying to avoid the rush, but, but that was there, and Robert Jackson wasn't on the field very much longer after that. And really the only other option you got at cornerback is A.J. Green, the rookie who's played one snap this season. So you're going into this Titans game you know, pretty much with, with Mitchell and Johnson and probably trying to figure out what your best option is at slot between Thomas and Stewart. Neither one of them is particularly great. Uh, but that's what Joe Woods has to work with this week and possibly next week against the Ravens. Cause we're not sure yet if Denzel Ward will be back for that. I mean, we should like send Joe Woods a sympathy card or something <laughs> having to go into these two games with that, that secondary. So very quick on Robert Jackson. I know exactly what play you're talking about, Scott. And I thought two things as that play was happening. One was who is that? And two was, why is he out there? So was he just giving Kevin Johnson a blow for like a series on that? Like I couldn't figure out like why he was, I was like, who is 34? I, I'm not the full-time beat writer, but I feel like I should know the people who play for the Browns. And yeah. it was like, who is that person who is six steps behind the receiver running behind him on a deep ball? Why was he on the field? Do we know? I don't know. His, his hair gives him away from me. It's, it's easy for me to, to realize who that is, but he, uh, Kevin Johnson started that drive. Uh, and he played the first play and wasn't injured from what I could tell. And then all of a sudden Robert Jackson is out there. And I mean, they have to expel these guys a little bit again. Kevin Johnson's in a different situation this week, or, or he was against the Jaguars, but yeah, all of a sudden Robert Jackson was out there and then he wasn't out there very much after that. And I just, uh, for everybody who's very frustrated when the Browns give things up, I mean, it is a realization I just made note of it, and it was, it was the case most of the game. But, like, here the Titans are in the red zone early on. They're trying to score to go ahead. And, honestly, your secondary is Terrence Mitchell, Kevin Johnson, Tavier Thomas, Andrew Sandejo, and Carl Joseph, because Harrison had been hurt by then. And it is like there, there is not a single guy there who's actually, like, a plan. 
I mean, honestly, maybe Johnson in the slot was a plan, but now he's playing outside. I guess Sandejo was going to get some snaps, but not as many snaps as he's getting. Like, that is not a playoff secondary. And this, it might have to be a playoff secondary. So we don't know exactly what's up with Harrison, but we know how important, obviously, Ronnie Harrison and Denzel Ward are the two best parts of that secondary. But, man, Ellis, of course, we're all going to note it. We're going to worry about it and complain about it. But man, I mean, they really, when you look at that, they are holding it together with Scotch. As, as good as Terrence Mitchell is as a backup, they are really holding the secondary together with bailing wire right now. Yeah, it's getting grim. Uh, there's just no other way to put it. It's getting grim. Scott, I like what you pointed out about MJ Stewart. Um, this is a tough week to have a, a potentially a slot corner that struggles tackling uh, and playing in, in the box with, with the Titans, it's going to be interesting how they, uh, the formations, the, the groupings, the personnel groupings, they, they try to uh, implement on Cleveland. Uh, right now they're running 11 purse 42% of the time, and they're in 12, 30% of the time. Uh, that 30% mark, I believe, leads the league. So we're, we're, they're going to see heavy formations, and you're going to ask your secondary to tackle. But the problem with that is this isn't the Jaguars receiving core. You know, it's A.J. Brown, it's Corey Davis, uh, two of the better athletes on the perimeter, despite what you think about Davis, perhaps being a bust, he still, you got to defend him when he's on the football field. He is a get off the bus type of athlete. And the Browns now just by mere eye test, you know, height, weight, speed, uh, the, the matchup game that we're going to talk about on Friday, they don't, they don't, it's advantage Tennessee. It's in, in every way, shape and form. It's an advantage Tennessee. Uh, early downs are going to be critical because as much, if, if Tennessee can live, in second and four and third and two, man, I, I saw what Minnesota did or what Tennessee did to Minnesota about probably five, six weeks ago now when Minnesota's secondary was a, a bunch of young kids trying to figure it out and Tannehill threw for like something like 350 yards or something. And that is um, in their arsenal. This is not just a Tennessee team that is run, run, run. They can stretch the field. They can make explosive plays in the passing game. And that might be on the horizon for Joe Woods in the secondary. Honestly, I think the instinct of everybody who watches the Browns and then just watches Tennessee from afar going into this game is like, oh, no, how do you stop Derrick Henry? But when you think about this secondary, I'm not so sure that it wouldn't be like, all right, give it to Derrick Henry 50 times. Just please don't throw. Please don't throw <laughs> on us. Like, that's okay. I don't think Derrick Henry is going to run for 70 yards every time you give it. But, you know, if they were going against Patrick Mahomes or – Aaron Rodgers or an elite passing game right now. I mean, they would really be in trouble. I, I almost think, all right, well, if they're running it, at least they're not throwing it, but what's it all going to mean? I mean, Ellis makes a good point. They Tannehill's been very efficient since he took over. He's been, he's been really good actually. And AJ Brown certainly has, is, has flashed what he can be. How is this? How do you think this is all going to shake out with this secondary against the Titans on Sunday, Scott? Yeah, the, the Titans aren't as clueless as the Eagles when it comes to realizing uh, that uh, that they should run the ball. You know, I mean, they the it's team. not gonna. Yeah, they, they know what they know what works. So, uh, you know, and like you say, when we think of the Titans, we think of Derrick Henry. But the Titans' passing game has been really dangerous. They are second in passing DVOA this season, behind only the Chiefs. Uh, Tannehill is the fourth QB uh, in DVO rankings, behind Mahomes, Rodgers, and Carr. Uh, he's 11th in PFF grab passing grade. So he's having a really good season. Uh, as far as the receivers go, uh, AJ Brown, he's only 28th in receiving yards, but he's got eight touchdowns and he averages 15.9 yards per catch, which is 10th in the league. So he's getting a lot of chunk yards, chunk plays. He's averaged over 20 yards per catch in four games this season. Corey Davis, the other receiver that the Browns are going to have to worry about, he, he kind of moves around. He's in the slot. Sometimes he's out wide. So there's going to be multiple defenders are going to have to worry about him. Uh, he only has three touchdowns, but he's averaging 14.7 yards per catch. And he's been over 20 yards per catch in each of the last two games. And now that might sound like Ryan Tannehill is throwing the ball extremely deep a lot, but he's actually gone backwards in intended air yards this season. Last season, he was a nine and a half. This year, he's at 7.7. But A.J. Brown leads the league. Well, it depends how you filter it. If you want to include Debo Samuel, who's only played five games, A.J. Brown would be second in this. But A.J. Brown, we could say he leads the league in 7.9 yards after catch, hmm. uh, which has been a big deal for Tannehill's numbers and obviously a big deal for Brown's numbers. Uh, one thing that Denzel Ward was really good at is limiting yards after catch, uh, just 62 total this year, which comes out to you know two, two yards per catch. Um, 
Mitchell's at 4.8, Kevin, Kevin Johnson at 5.8. So there are yards to be had a little bit there, especially if you get those guys matched up against Kevin Johnson, which I'm guessing is the matchup that the Titans are going to want to look for in this game, uh, no matter who it is. Tavier Thomas, by the way, has actually been really good in limiting yards after catch, just 2.6, but he's you know got other issues in the slide, like just staying with receivers in general. And then really, I mean, those are the only two guys that have been significant uh, receiving threats for the Titans this year. Adam Humphreys has been out a while with a concussion issue. They use their tight ends a lot, uh, but really Davis and Brown are the two guys that, that uh, the Browns have to concern themselves with. And you're going to remember last year's Titans game, A.J. Brown had a 51-yard catch uh, with Mitchell in coverage, had a 47-yarder with Ward in coverage, uh, two big catches that kind of stand out. And really, A.J. Brown didn't have – I think those were his only two catches that day. Um, so it wasn't like he was uh, ripping up the, the Browns' defense. It was mostly Derrick Henry <laughs> that day and the, the screen pass from hell that, that pretty much broke that game open. Before I wrap this up, I want to mention how these guys do against the run because, again, that's going to be important, even though Tannehill's having a big game. Uh, Mitchell and Ward have been the top tackling cornerbacks on this team. They're not great. They're both in the 60s for PFF grade. Um, but you only got one of them out there now. Tavier Thomas, 52.8. Johnson, 48.8. Stewart, like we said, really struggles, 29.3. And then you're also taking Ronnie Harrison off the field, like we mentioned earlier. And he's pretty much been your best secondary player outside of Denzel Ward, whether it's in coverage or tackling. Uh, so that's, you know, you got a, a secondary that really struggles against the run outside of, of Mitchell. And you got guys who give up yards after catch, trying to cover guys who get a lot of yards after catch. So again, it's, it's not a great matchup for the secondary. And it feels like it's, it's going to go back to what we have talked about, what everybody has seen all year, which is with this defense is just try to limit the big plays and fight for another down and hope the next down is the one where miles Garrett gets a sack that both in tackling Derrick Henry, who has as many big runs, I think this season, as many 20-yard-plus runs as anybody in the league except Nick, except Nick Chubb, and you're talking about A.J. Brown after the catch, they're not going to stop these guys. But at least make their touchdown drives be 10 plays and not four plays, because then if Miles is back and Miles is anywhere near his normal self, you give Miles a shot. You give Miles a shot. Maybe you get a holding penalty. Maybe you have somebody drops a ball, and you just you hope they have the one mistake that – that screws up a drive because it just, it feels like a tough matchup for this secondary Scott that, I mean, they're, you know, I, I can imagine, I can already catch you. You can hear the frustration of Browns fans. I don't even want to have Twitter up during the game on Sunday. You just have to prepare yourself as a fan to be frustrated by this secondary in this matchup, both in tackling the run and limiting the pass. It, it's not going to look pretty on Sunday. It's just, there's almost no chance, right? Well, here's the thing that, this is the game where you think there's no way they can survive if they don't have a takeaway like they did against, you know, against the Jaguars. This is the game where the Browns have to get takeaways. The problem with that is Tennessee is plus 11 in turnover differential. Uh, they've only given up the ball five times, four interceptions, one fumble. So it doesn't happen often. There's going to be some things that have to happen against the norm for the Browns to defensively have the kind of game that they've had in their victories. Again, it's, it's everything, everything points to a really long day for this defense. Uh, if the Browns are going to win, they're either going to have to get a ton of, not a ton, but you know, some key turnovers or, you know, the offense is going to have to score 40 points. That, that's what it looks like going into this. Yeah. It's as simple as this. It's a bad matchup. It, this is strength on strength. And there's a reason uh, when the betting lines came out, Sunday night that this is the second highest over under in Vegas at I believe it's 54 and a half. There's, this is going to be points. Tennessee's defense is nothing special either. They're not as banged up as, as uh, Cleveland is, you know, I don't know what Javon Clowney, he, he didn't play last week, but it's, it's going to be a, a long, long day unless the, you, the Browns can find some turnovers, but as Scott just laid out, that seems unlikely. Uh, it's going to be an offensive showdown and that is going to play into both, offense's hands it's going to be possibly a game of who has the ball last yeah the, the Browns best defense on Sunday is going to be a good offense that's the way they're going to stop Tennessee is by having the ball and not letting them dominate the game 
uh, by stacking up long drives. All right, Scott Pasco, thanks for that dive into Terrence Mitchell and the Browns secondary. We'll take a quick break and be right back with Ellis Williams on the Browns offensive line. You're listening to Gotta Watch the Tape from Cleveland.com. Back on Gotta Watch the Tape, I'll just, I'll just read you the email. This is how we communicate. We plan this. We don't just pull this out of thin air. These guys have facts. Most of the time when I'm on a podcast, I'm pulling it out of thin air. That's not what we do on Gotta Watch the Tape. So this is what Ellis Williams is going to do. My topic, why the Browns have the best offensive line in football. It's right there in the email. Dive in, Ellis, on Gotta Watch the Tape. Yeah, Doug, Scott, I've teased this a few times already, but it's time to officially say it. I'm declaring on Gotta Watch the Tape, and the story is live on Cleveland.com. Go read. That the Browns have the best offensive line in pro football, and this isn't a hot take or attention-seeking view, nothing like that. I'm saying it because the data and the film prove the statement accurate. The Browns have the best line because they are playing at a top-tier level and, equally important, have the brightest and most secure future of any starting five across the NFL. Simply, this is what a wildly successful NFL offseason looks like. A body of work matching the expectation of an on-paper roster. That's what the Browns have accomplished through 11 weeks. So before we get into the analytics and dive into this some more, let's just do a quick reintroduction of this unit, the Avengers style, you know, the Iron Mans, the Thors, that first movie when they all get their little like you know, two minute start, you know, because I think it's important to, to hear these this out loud, man. This is a big unit. This is an impressive group that the Browns have gathered. Left tackle Jedrick Wills, 6'4", 312 pounds, only 21 years old. Joel Batonio, 6'4", 320 pounds, 29 years old. J.C. Treader, also 6'4", 307 pounds, 29 years old. The two vets in there, Batonio Treader, as Brown fans know. Wyatt Teller, surprise of the season, 6'4", 315 pounds. He looks way bigger than that on the field, but that's what he's listed at. 26 years old. Jack Conklin, 6'6", 308 pounds, 26 years old. Now, before you go, oh, Ellis, it's the NFL. All these offensive linemen are huge. No. That's what a starting offensive line looks like. Chris Hubbard, 6'4", 295 pounds. And back when we were getting into the locker room just a year ago, you could kind of tell it was not on his best day. He wasn't that close to 300. That's what a solid offensive unit looks like. They are a wall. These are They are the protectors, and that's the role they play. But a lot of guys have the size, but do they have the feet, the speed, the, the footwork, the coaching to reach that top level? And that's exactly what the Browns have had with both the signing of Bill Callahan and, as I said earlier, the off the offseason of adding Jack Conklin and Jedrick Wills, shoring up the tackles. So before we go into deeper things like adjusted run rate and power success and stuff rate, let's just have a brief overview on how the season's going. Some highlights. The Browns rushed for 256 yards versus Houston. They controlled an Eagles D-line that was fourth in the league in sacks. They helped Nick Chubb gain 144 yards in Jacksonville. And then, you know, there was that lull when Wyatt Teller was out, which now clearly we know that they need all five pieces to be at their best. Shocker. Before Teller's injury, that historic 307-yard rushing performance in Jerry World. I could have said that Dallas, but any chance I get an opportunity to say Jerry World out loud, <laughs> I'm going to take it. That's because someday you have visions in your head of there being an Ellis World. Someday, <laughs> somehow, there will be We're an Ellis We're working on it, right? Stay scheming. Uh-huh. All right, and then they had the three rushing touchdowns versus Washington and 215 yards in the home opener in week two against the Bengals. The first time we saw what really this offense was supposed to be the Nick Chubb, Kareem Hunt, one-two punch. That was the first time we saw it, and now it's clearly become this offense's identity. So, again, before we dive into some more, some deeper analytics, you guys, am I talking crazy? Did Ellis wake up this morning talking crazy? Or where do you land on the best O-line in football residing in Cleveland, Ohio? I, I can like, – I, I don't know how they compare, I guess. I mean, if you want to go by PFF, great. Yeah, definitely. They're, they're tops in run blocking. They're top in pass blocking. And, and – and that's great. I think pointing out their age there is, is a good uh, way to look at it too. The fact that they have a really good mix of veterans and young guys and they're not, yeah, they're pouring a lot of money into it. They basically gotten back to where they were before Sashi Brown showed up and they kind of let the wrong people go. That's, that's really kind of what they got back to. And, you know, I think it was Andrew Barry, really Andrew Barry and I think Kevin Stefanski both talked about how this is supposed to be a quarterback centric team. 
this year. And that didn't mean that the quarterback was going to fuel the offense, but that they built a team where they just had to plop the quarterback in and everything was ready to go. And that's a huge part of what this offensive line has done. It's created a situation where Baker's in, in a great spot to succeed. And, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm going to take your word for it that they're the best. <laughs> I think the people who grade them on a weekly basis say they're the, they're the best. Uh, you know, this, this team set up for success and they're not going to go into this offseason wondering how they're going to fix the offensive line. It's fixed. White Teller playing on, you know, playing at a level no one ever expected him to play is a huge part of it. But the offensive line is the least of this team's worries going into the offseason. I have tears streaming down my face, Ellis, as you went through that. After a year ago, just be, having a knot in my stomach about are these tackles murdering this season? Doug, it was the first podcast we did together. We, we talked about should they trade for Trent Williams and what the heck is going on with this whole line? It, it's crazy how it's come full circle this quickly. And that, and that really you could have all these other things. And, and it was going into last year is it was the offensive line will at least be average to let everything else happen. And it wasn't. And it wasn't the only thing or well, the only reason things fell apart, but I think it was the number one thing. So I think the thing that you pointed out that, again, is just they're good at both. When you go back and watch them, they do build a wall in pass protection. Watch when Baker has that, that wall and nobody's getting through. They're good in communication. They don't give up a lot of like, who's got that guy? Oh, there's an unblocked, you know, and I think it surprises sometimes. First play of the game against Jacksonville, they have a blitzer on the edge. Conklin has to take him. Teller's supposed to step out a little bit to take the defensive end. He gets out a, a half step too late and gets beat and Baker gets sacked. And it's like, what happened there? And it's like, well, that actually that happens to some teams like all the time when it happens to the Browns, we're shocked. And then like, it didn't really happen the rest of the game. So they do it in pass protection with their feet and their technique and their communication. And then in the run game, as we said before, it looks like ballet sometimes that these are not just maulers. These guys are athletes who can get out, who can pull, who seal things off and you can see the way they work together. And especially I think with Teller and Treader and Betonio inside the feet they have to get out and lead things, man, it really, they are, it's, it feels like it's five guys who are all the complete package. Yeah. I mean, some guys might be a little better in pass protection or in run blocking, whatever, but there's not an obvious, sometimes to be great, you just have to not have an obvious flaw. And I'm not sure there's a, I'm not sure there's an obvious flaw. They do everything between pretty well and very well. Yeah, the Browns O-line is playing like a unit with two years experience under their belt. And when reality, they have 11 games through a shortened pandemic offseason. It's a, it's a testament to Bill Callahan, the expert, both coach and educator that he is. And then the overall vision of Kevin Stefanski, clearly inside that building, or I guess I should say on Zoom virtual meetings, they stress education. And I promise you, not all NFL coaches are like that. There are plenty of coaches in this league who say, our guys are better than your guys. Let's line them up. We can beat them. We're, we're just better. It's a simplistic mindset, but it also allows you to play faster. When you become an expert in something, it's where your talent meets your preparation and your diverse ability to, like you said, Doug, not get confused in pass pro. And then as we've talked about on this pod before, the vast ability they have in the run game. This is not just a wide zone team. Their man gap, their power, their wham, they're, they're even doing some shotgun run now. They have it all. So Getting into the analytics of this Browns O-line, this is where it gets a little interesting. And, Doug, it, it, now we're going to get into how you started the show, talking a little bit about what's going on with this team in short yardage. Not that I necessarily have the answers, but the data, this isn't just a small sample size. The data speaks for it. First, the good. Football Outsiders has a, has a lot of really uh, nuanced offensive line stats. We'll start with adjusted line yards. This stat simply tries to eliminate the running back from the equation and just give credit to the offensive line and how successful they are. The Browns are fifth in that. Now, these next two stats speak to having the best one-two punch in football and probably the best running back in football in Nick Chubb, but you still have to block it up. The Browns are first in open field yards. That runs between five and 10 yards. And then they're first and second level yards. That's runs of 11 or more, which it goes into the explosive plays. Uh, but, but you still have to reach that second level. Here's where things get confusing. And I'll say this before we jump. Their sack rate is also 10th. So, you know, they're, they're protecting Baker. It's in a lot when Scott's talked about this before, a lot of Baker's pressures are self-inflicted. This line's protecting Baker. They're, they're getting a, their own credit for their, their uh, rushing yards that these running backs are gaining. And then they're popping explosive plays. 
The issue is, and I don't, I, I don't think I have an answer for this, but the data is there. Their power run success rate is 30th. What power run success rate tracks is third and fourth down runs that achieve a first down or a touchdown. They're 30th. I'll say this after the Texans game, they were eighth, I believe. And now these two games, Eagles and Jacksonville have dropped them all the way down. No, Andy Janovich. I think that's important to mention. And the same goes for stuff run rate. They're 24th, a little better, but still not where you want to be. That stat tracks the percent of runs that are tackled behind the line of scrimmage. And that makes sense with this O line. We've talked about how it's a one yard gain, one yard gain, two yard gain. And then eventually you get the Nick Chubb 40, 50 yard run. You get the Kareem Hunt 11, 12, 15 yard bruising. So it's, I guess you can't have it all, or this would undoubtedly be the best O line in football. My argument is they are playing at a top tier level and have the brightest future. That's what makes them the best. And they're, so they're not across the board. Perfect. But yeah, short yard is an issue right now. And I guess I'm going to have to talk to some people smarter than me because I, I don't have an answer for that, but it matches the eye test. Doesn't it? This team's getting stuffed in short yard situations. Let's see if we have anybody smarter who can answer. Scott, you got an answer. You got a solution. Why is this happening in short yardage with a, with a line and, a, and running backs that are so good? Yeah. I mean, like I alluded to in, in my, my portion of this, I mean, Nick Chubb, he's, he's one of the best running backs in DVOA, but his success rate, which measures how much you're getting stuffed versus big runs before this past game, he was like 22nd in success rate. So it was way down there. He's jumped up to like 13th after the Jaguars because the Jaguars help everybody's stats, but that's been Nick Chubb his entire career. It's, it's get stuff, get stuff, get stuff, break a 20 yard gain, you know, get a five yard gain, get a 50 yard gain. It's that, that's what he's like. And I think that has something to do with how this offensive line is performing, uh, you know, and also just the nature of a short yardage play. Those aren't usually going to be formations where everybody's spread out and you right. hand a ball to to a running back who's running, you know, at a, at a line that's only got, you know, four or five people in the box. It's usually everybody's scrunched together. Everybody knows it's going to be running play. They're just kind of guarding for that tight end rolling out. Um, so that's, that's Nick Chubb and he's just not there yet. I don't know if you'll ever get there. I think that's why you see Kareem Hunt maybe a little more in those goal to go situations. Cause I think Stefanski realizes that Kareem gets those yards a little better than Chubb does. And then you wonder, it's like, well, then should they should they throw a little more in those situations? And then, you know, before the fourth down stop the other day, they do the play action rollout with Baker. He's got Kareem Hunt right in front of him and he misses him. And it's like, OK, well, I guess I guess we're not going to do that. So I, it feels like one of these things we see this run game work things out during the course of a game. This feels like something that they're still working out through the course of a season. They don't know what their go to short yardage play is at this point. And. I mean, again, they, they got it on a sneak against Vegas. I think it was a little up-tempo. They got up to the line. They just went on fourth and one, and Baker got two. He's not a huge dude. No. Like, he's not Ben Roethlisberger. You know, I don't, I don't know that you're going to say, well, our, 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 whatever we have third and fourth, third or fourth down and one yard, we're just going Baker sneak. I don't, I don't think that's where they're going to wind up either. But I, I don't know what the exact solution is. But I do think it, it might be thrown a little more. It might be... 13 personnel because they have, they have good luck with some of this 13 personnel. Well, they'll have the three tight ends lined up right next to each other. And the defense doesn't know who's blocking and who's going out in a route. And it creates some confusion. And sometimes a guy is open right away and maybe there's more they can do with that, but it also it's counterintuitive. It's like, well, we're eight and three because we run the ball. Why wouldn't we run the ball on short yardage? except you're not good at running the ball on short yardage, but you are good at running the ball every other time, but you don't want to give up on the thing that you're best at. But yet here we are 11 games in and honestly, like not getting that fourth down cracked the door to lose that game on Sunday. And so not not catching, not, not throwing to a wide open Kareem hunt, a pass that he could catch is what what really lit the door open. And it is, but it's like, but that already happened. Now it's fourth and one fourth and inches. So what are we going to do? Are we going to kick the field goal? Are we going to hand off? I understand maybe you don't want to give it to Baker again. Well, you just missed that throw. We're not going to have you throw again. So we're going to run up the middle with Kareem Hunt, but you don't get the block on the defensive end and he blows it up. So Ellis, it's really interesting. Of course, Kevin Stefanski sees it, but I don't know that there, I don't know that there is a simple, I don't know. 
I mean, they're going to keep trying stuff, but is there an obvious? What would you do, Ellis? What would you start doing on third and one or fourth and one that maybe they aren't doing right now? Yeah, so this is, as you guys were working through that, I landed on a few things. I think this is what the Browns are going to be. It's going to be their biggest problem is going to be short yard situations because I don't have the data in front of me, but just as a young kid growing up watching Adrian Peterson, he reminds me so much of Nick Chubb. Their running styles are different, but I'm talking about the big play. You, you just know he's due for one or two game-busting runs of 30, 40, 50 yards. And then AP had these moments where you just couldn't convert short yardage. Looking at uh, Football Insider's uh, offensive line data, Minnesota, the Minnesota Vikings are second, or 29th, I'll say, you know, right there with the Browns in their poor power success rate and stuff runs. They're having the same issues with Dalvin Cook, which tells me this, I think. When your strength is your strength, teams are going to stop that strength in short yard situations. Okay, you're going to run the football. Uh, it's, it's third and one, fourth and one. Throw it. Go for it. Because we're not going to let either Nick Chubb, Dalvin Cook, or a decade ago, Adrian Peterson, stop us, which goes to Scott's point. That's why that Baker throw is so important. And it's also why Baker Mayfield's red zone touchdowns, especially through the first you know six games of the season, eight games of the season, were so prolific because those opportunities were there, and that's where he needs to be an expert. It's why Kirk Cousins last year, his touchdowns and his red zone efficiency was through the roof because you have the – the luxury of Dalvin cook behind you, just like Baker now has Nick Chubb and Kirk cousins is still throwing the majority of his touchdowns in the red zone. These touchdowns the Vikings have aren't 20, 30 yard bombs, just like it's not happening in Cleveland. So I think this is what the problem is. It's uh, when your strength is your strength, the defense takes that away and you got to throw. I, I think that's where we've landed. So fourth and goal final three minutes in the AFC championship game. Browns are down five to the chiefs. What do you call? Would you throw it or would you lean on what you do best and believe in it and think this is the time it works? We're giving it to Kareem Hunt and we're telling him to run behind Joel Batonio and, and JC Treader and make this happen. You know, what's fun about these hypotheticals, Doug, I hope, I believe, I trust that Kevin Stefanski is saving that Nick Chubb, Kareem Hunt package for just those moments. We saw him on the field, maybe I think a couple downs in, in Jacksonville, but that's exactly the type of mystery you need to put on the field for that situation. Cause I don't know what the exact play call is, but I know having them both on the field would be extremely problematic when the stakes are at their highest. What you decide to do with it is ultimately a decision that is going to come down to Kevin Stefanski and then a trust in Baker Mayfield probably. But, man, that is when I think you can put the most stress on the defense and increase your probability of scoring and have the most advantageous chance is with those two in the backfield, perhaps some motion, and you have a hunt and some jet action. And now I'm just getting play design and creative with you here. But I, a guy like Kevin Stefanski, I'm guessing, has a lot more in his bag as they get to December and January football for those exact moments you're describing. Yeah, real quick, I would I would say you're getting back to that fourth and uh, fourth down against the Jaguars. I got the sense, hearing Stefanski talk after the game, that he was angry, and that's why he went what? for that. Because really, it was like five and a half minutes to go, and while analytics will say you should always go for it on fourth and one, when you get down to the end of the game, time becomes a factor and point differential and all that. And kicking a field goal probably made more sense there. But I really came away from. Stefanski's post-game presser thinking that he was really PO'd that they did not get the third down and felt it's just inches we should get this and that probably went against what he should have done it's just the way he kind of came across it's an emotional game at times I, I get it and that's the first that was the first time I, I think we saw Kevin Stefanski really you know how you would see him behind closed doors that was raw and I do and I, and I this is what I wrote for Cleveland.com for for Tuesday Ryan Day at Ohio State had virtually the identical situation against Indiana the last time the Buckeyes played, where they went on a fourth and one when they were up seven, kicking the field goal would put you up two scores. And both Stefanski and Ryan Day in the moment said, we had a good play call, right? Which is one of those, well, it's not about do you have a good play call, it's do you get the first down? And I think it's an interesting learning experience for both relatively new head coaches of we everybody loves it when you're aggressive. Everybody wants nobody wants a conservative head coach who punts all the time or kicks every field goal. And the league is trending that way. The league is getting much smarter. 
But there are moments where you have to go against your instinct and say, we got to go up two scores. It's five minutes left. We got to kick the easy field goal. Cody Parkey, he only has the only 30 to 39 yarder he's missed all year was in the wind against Vegas when it was a banana kick. And that's not his fault. He's going to make this. We're going to go up 11. We can't risk it. Yes, I'm ticked, but I have to pull back. And I think it's an interesting evolution to watch coaches go through this. And, and I do, but I do think you're right. I think you guys make a really good point. And, but you understand why it's hard because we're good at this. Why isn't it working? We're good at it, except you're not actually good at this exact specific thing. So you have to be able to adjust to that at some point. Yep. And that's it. And that's again, really what I think we've landed on here is that the Browns aren't ranked number one in every key offensive line category, it, but the sum of their parts equal what I would call a, a sustainable unit that's positioned to carry Cleveland's offense for years to come. And I've got some PFF and some ESPN win rate data to back that up. Let's start with Jedrick Wills. And this is probably, we'll get to a deep dive on Wills eventually because we've, we've been teasing it and he's deserving of one. Uh, Wills is the 81st ranked tackle according to PFF, but he is 15th best in pass pro and Browns fans. I think you should be comfortable with that. You should be able to live with that knowing first of all, he's a rookie. And second of all, it is so much easier to protect the deficiencies of a tackle in the run game than it is their pass blocking weaknesses. When you're on an Island with TJ Watt, you're on an Island with TJ Watt. It is what it is. When you're running the football, there's a lot of ways that you can just keep Jedrick away from the play, give him backside assignments and clean it up. It's why we've talked about earlier in the, in the season, why they run right so much. So that is what it is. His win rate. Also, I want to point out Jedrick Wills. He's number eight in all football, according to ESPN's uh, win rate, 94% of the time. He's winning in pass protection 94% of the time. You guys quickly, just if I was going to tell you that with the number 10 overall pick, the Browns were going to land a left tackle that was winning and a 94% clip 11 games into his rookie season. How's that feel? How's that sound? I'm going to guess Greg Robinson was not winning at a 94% clip at left tackle last year. So that feels great. Yeah. Now, Greg Rob or Jedrick Wills is, is probably he's, he's your left tackle on the all rookie team at this point. I, I think he's leading the race easily. So there you go. All right. So for some of these other guys, uh, Joel Batonio, seventh best guard, according to PFF, he's the number one pass win rate uh, of ESPN and number eight in run rate winning uh, JC Treader, number four in PFF, number three in pass win rate, number 10 uh, in PFF's run block rate. He was not on ESPN's run winning rate but number 10 in pff's run grade uh wyatt teller don't even spend a lot of time here he's the number one guard in all football right now 93.9 overall i think that's even like two grades better than the next guard it's just ridiculous what he's doing Uh, and then jack conklin number 10 in pff a win rate of of number three overall according to espn so with that before i get to this last part of just about the future of this this o-line this is a collection of parts that we are we we started with talking about how as a unit they're performing but when you just go down the list there's not a team in football that has this type of high ranked individual play across the offensive line it's the best unit in football and when you take them apart individually you realize how special each of these players are having this season It, it is a collectively they're good but i think individually they're even better and it's just a testament to how the league works. The five answers they have there now. Two of the answers were already there. They were in place. Right. Two of the answers they, they targeted and went out and found the answers in the offseason. And the other one's a miracle. Wyatt Teller is a miracle. <laughs> he is the miracle of John Dorsey. It's like the bills are good. The bills are fine. But the bills are like, what? We just like let that guy go at the end of camp because we didn't have a spot for him anymore? I mean, he makes up for the Austin Corbett miss like he just answers a million questions. And just like we were saying with Terrence Mitchell, hey, you know, if you had a guy where there's a gaping hole and you're just able to target somebody opposite a great player, if they had a gaping hole at right guard right now, the way they did last year, God, it was Eric Cush. Who else was working it? I mean, the, the right guard was a mess last year. If there was a gaping hole, we would notice. Not only is it not a gaping hole, he's the best guard in the NFL. So it's a miracle. And the most surprising thing that you have said so far, Ellis, in this analysis is that Joel Batonio is not 40. That guy's only 29 on a team that has like no, he's like, he's the only guy who's been here through all of this. He's the guy that everybody asks every question, big picture question about the franchise. He has a beard. 
I was going to say, his beard takes up the whole Zoom call. It's all, the whole screen. He's 29? I cannot believe he's 29. But, man, he's playing well. Yes. So, with this offensive line, again, the, the, collectively, that's how they're playing. Individually, they, they pop in both PFF and ESPN grades. And then, Doug, I'm bringing back one of your favorite segments. We've only done it once. But when it comes to this unit, it is clear that the success is a result of Following the money, baby. Follow that money because Cleveland's offensive line accounts for nearly 18% of their cap. It's the fifth most expensive offensive line in football. Of course, Jedrick Wills' rookie contract softens that blow a bit, but the Browns are getting exactly what they paid for. As I said, Jedrick is on his rookie deal. Don't have to worry about an extension for him for another three seasons. It's good. He'll, he's going to earn every dollar of that, but it's not a problem right now. Joel Batonio. Three years left, $27 million. J.C. Treader, two years left, $20 million. Wyatt Teller, again, the miracle steal, making 900000 next year, one year left on his rookie deal. Uh, we'll probably, the Browns will probably look to extend him, and we've talked about that before. Um, Doug, you and um, Dan and Mary Kay did an extension podcast that I really enjoyed and unpacked all that, but the Browns have the cap space to do it. I don't think that'll be an issue. And then Jack Conklin just signed the third highest paid uh, tackle deal this past offseason he'll have two years about 30 28 million dollars left point being is there's no question marks about the future of this offensive line the money is clear this is where they want to invest this is where they're going to allocate their resources and when you look across the rest of the league some of the better offensive lines in football are the rams the patriots uh, the titans and the vikings every team has some question marks the patriots have a joe tooney on a franchise tag, who knows what his future is there. The Rams, uh, about three weeks ago, lost 38-year-old left tackle Andrew Whitworth. Of course, Doug, your favorite guy, Austin Corbett's there. You're not, you're not too worried about the, <laughs> the Rams offensive line going forward, I'm sure. Uh, Tennessee starting a third-string left tackle on Sunday. And Minnesota does run like Cleveland, but their sack rate is nearly two times higher. They've got interior problems that the Browns simply don't have. So, again, to wrap this up, the, t- the Browns are playing like an offensive line with two years under their belt when it's really just 11 games in a shortened offseason. And all these guys are locked up under contract for the future. The future is bright. And the fact that it can probably get better than this, assuming health, it, it, it's, it's fascinating. It is, I am already can foresee an offseason where national media starts talking about how going into the 2021 season, the Cleveland Browns are the best offensive line in football. It'll, it'll take care of itself because the Browns front office has done their due diligence and planned accordingly. And now we're seeing the benefits of that. By the way, any national media in the future who now found this podcast because they Googled Brown's best offensive line, Ellis Williams said it first, you national latecomers. So make sure you give this man credit. Roster building, love roster building, love the whole thing. Scott, I think some underrated people we have to credit for the success of the Browns offensive line are BJ Goodson and Andrew Sandejo for being cheap. Because again, <laughs> like you can't, when you put all this money in this position group, there's no money left for other position groups. So as much criticism as the back end of the Browns defense has gotten this year, as we've said a couple times before, at least they're cheap. And it's like, why aren't they better? Why aren't the Browns linebackers better? It's because Jack Conklin got all the linebacker money and it was worth it, right? I mean, Scott, this is a give and take with roster building. Well, I mean, you could say that about the whole offense in general. Like, that's where the money went this, this offseason. And they didn't want to commit. They had money. They just didn't want to commit a lot of it to the defense, probably because they couldn't get the guys they wanted to get in free agency. And this is what they're left with. So why commit to these people that you're not sure about to begin with? Why give Sandejo and Joseph long-term contracts? Why give BJ Goodson a long-term contract uh, when you know that, uh, you know, next year the defense is probably going to be the focus, you know, in free agency, in the draft. I mean, they don't have to, they're, they're looking at depth maybe on the offensive side of the ball. I mean, Odell still got another year on his contract. Jarvis still, you know, he's still getting paid too. It's, it's not, they're not looking definitely for replacements, for those guys, I think at this point, it's really focused towards the defense. And that's where the money is going to get spent next year. And I do think it allows you, this is how you start building a good team. Cause you lock some places down. You aren't in scramble mode in the off season. You aren't in desperation mode. You say, Hey, we're good on the offensive line. 
we did, we spent all our money. I mean, the idea, Ellis, that you laid out that this is not just now, this is for the next couple of years. And then it allows you to focus your money, focus your efforts on the, on the areas. You don't have six areas of need. You have a couple areas of need. Well, you might have like eight areas of need on the defense, but still the offensive line is good. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things, Ellis, that it's paying off. And as you laid it out, it's paying off on every snap on Sunday, but it's also paying off in the plan for what this team is. And that is going to pay dividends, not just now, but in the next couple of years. Let me just say this real quick. Uh, I tease and I gimmick about follow the money, but that theory doesn't always work out. There are plenty of deals across the NFL where you give a guy some free agent money and they just do not pan out. So it is a, a testament again to Andrew Barry, Kevin Stefanski, Bill Callahan, to have an accurate assessment of what Jack Conklin is. It probably helped in the, the draft process, and I'm sure they did some heavy scouting on him in, in, already. But point being, they nailed it. And in a, in a w- the weirdest offseason in NFL history, that, that was not going to be easy, and it, it paid off, and they've made the right decision every step of the way with this unit. I think we'll call it there. We did sort of our little extra discussion at the beginning of this one. So we'll save our final thoughts for the Friday podcast when we dig in, get a little more specific about this Tennessee Cleveland game on Sunday, two, eight and three teams, very similar teams. This was an important look. I like it's not a newsflash, but I just heard him say it one time. So it sticks in my head, but Joe Thomas talking about that middle class in the NFL of like, you can't just have superstars and rookies. you got to have some sort of professional dudes in the middle. And a guy like Terrence Mitchell is like a professional dude in the middle, you know, like a guy like now Joe Batonio is getting some money and stuff, but like, again, you're paying professional guys to do their job in the middle of the roster. So you're not just a team that has Odell Beckham jr, miles Garrett, and then a bunch of nothing else behind it. That's what we're seeing. And I think to investigate that part of the Browns roster certainly is a huge part of their success this year. We appreciate you guys listening and got to watch the tape. We love all the work that Scott and Ellis put into this stuff. This is a fun team to analyze because they have a lot of different parts that truly really are working together. So Friday, we'll be back with episode two. I've got to watch the tape this week. Listen to all the Orange and Brown Talk podcasts all week, wherever you find the finest podcast in the land for now. Thanks to Scott. Thanks to Ellis. Thanks to you guys for listening. I'm Doug. And thanks for diving in on Gotta Watch the Tape.